Welcome back to Boozy's Legal Funhouse, the weekly podcast recorded live in front of a presently virtual audience where I, the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger, yell at you for an hour and a half about law, lawyering, lawsuits, legal precedents, legal news, specific cases, and whatever extrajudicial commentary may jump into my mind at the moment. This week, we're going to have a little talk about the First Amendment, John Adams, and history. But before we do that, I need to read off the names of our $5 level and above producers over at patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor, since that's a part of the social contract we've made with them. So a special boozy thank you to Evie Solis, Just James, Calic, Scott Skunk, Coma Blood Paul, Zeros the Lion, Cece Otter, Dragor, Wheelie, Nikolai, Jason Knight, Chroma Hydra, Jeremy the Headfox, Ghost Goat, Sean Rabbit, Buddy Good Boy, Mark Whipple, Lisa Lupe, Dozer the Trash Panda, Ed B. Colley, Tezcat Magic Jag, Grace Jane Gollinger, Mark Phaedrus, Eddie the Weather Fox, Tyranth, Mama T, Beaton, Michael Blocker, Just Dave, Petrov Neutrino, David Hunter, The Dragon Show, Wayland Roche, Uncle Kage, Ian Delahorn, Netherlinks, Feck, Pandemonium, Mark Beckwar. Thank you to all of those wonderful people. And remember, if you want to help support Boozy's Legal Funhouse, you can do so over at patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor. Before we get started, as we're talking about an area of law that, if you're in the United States, has general applicability, it's time for me to give you what we've all been waiting for, a disclaimer. Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an informational, educational, and hopefully entertaining podcast where we talk about the general principles of legal matters, cases, news, and other things of that nature. While I'm an attorney, I'm not your attorney. The law is a fickle, fickle creature, and the generalities I discuss today may or may not be applicable to the specific application of the law in your jurisdiction. The only way to be certain is to contact a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction to ask them about these matters. Remember, the only way that I become your attorney is if you come into my office. Sit down and speak with me. I agree to represent you. You sign an engagement letter with me. You pay me a retainer fee of my choosing. And we have that relationship. Absent all of those things happening... There is no attorney-client privilege, attorney-client relationship, or any other special condition that exists solely as a result of you tuning into Boozy's Legal Funhouse or, in the case of Patreon supporters, asking questions during the course of this episode or any other episode. Please, for the love of God, whatever you do, do not say a fat guy who acts like a cartoon badger on the internet told me to do this. It won't hold up in court. That's said and done before we get into the topic for tonight's episode. It's time to take a look at some legal news in Boozy's Legal Roundup, where we talk about recent, or in the case of this episode, week-old developments in the law. The first one comes to us from Westlaw Today. Jenna Green for Westlaw Today wrote the article on March 12th, 2021. For these lawyers, all the world's a stage. Opening with the line, there's a little bit of the Hambone actor in each of us. I guarantee you I have no clue what with screen is talking about. That quote, though, is actually from Winston and Strawn partner and Bard Association Chair Ab Lowell. Now I hear you saying, what is the Bard Association? Well, those of you familiar with my work in certain fandoms may be familiar with the concept of a mock trial at a furry convention. And it sounds weird, and it sounds strange, and it sounds somewhat amusing at the idea of putting a giant fox on the stand to have them testify as to whether or not they were liable for something in a fictional scenario. But what if I told you that the partners at large law firms are doing the same thing, but in a much less fun manner? You see, I do it with furries, but these people do it with Shakespeare. The Bard Association is a group of attorneys who put on mock trials with Shakespearean theater companies on the East Coast by the Shakespeare Theater Company and on the West Coast by UC Shakespeare uh, for Shakespearean... uh, conflicts, I guess. This year, they based their two plays off of The Winner's Tale and Julius Caesar, featuring an A-list cast of lawyers and judges, including 
United States Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, former Department of Justice Antitrust Division Head McCann DeLarm, and Mueller Investigation Top Lawyer Andrew Weissman, as loyal as Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chimerinsky. We record it live, we're keeping the fuck-ups. All of them have said the same thing. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Featuring a pressure to be both amusing and legally correct, said Delarim, being a... uh, something they haven't faced before, which is funny to me because they're also an adjunct lecturer in, at Penn Law in my home state of Pennsylvania on this. Interestingly enough, uh, I, I feel their pain. I certainly feel their pain. There certainly is a lot of pressure when you're doing mock trials for the general public to be both amusing and legally accurate. We uh, here at Lawyers in Liquor and the Boozy Legal Funhouse don't always guarantee both. Uh, In some statements that I take offense at, Wiseman stated, lawyers are not really known for their sense of humor. I would strongly disagree. Uh, The record showed references to witch hunts, White House Christmas decorations, shithole countries, and even Robert Mueller as well. Uh, In a winter tale, as you may or may not know, the husband of a character is eaten by a bear. At one point, that prompted Wiseman to turn on the panda bear filter on his Zoom call as a reference to the Texas lawyer who turned in as a cat, stating, I'm actually a bear, not a lawyer. This was headed not only by a sitting Supreme Court Chief Justice, or justice, not chief justice, but a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, a U.S. District judge, and a D.C. Court of Appeals judge, as well as retired D.C. Circuit Judge Thomas Griffith. In a normal year, tickets to these mock trials sell out in minutes, uh, packing a 761-seat arena. And it's not any surprise considering that in the 27 years these lawyers have been doing this participants have included ruth bader Ginsburg, samuel alito jr current supreme court justice amy coney barrett merrick garland Catherine mueller rod ronstein noel francisco jesse lou kate stetson the list goes on a who's who of who is in the legal establishment uh so just proof Lawyers do have a sense of humor, and I'm not the only one stupid enough to come up with a fake mock trial on this. That said, um, we're going to move out of fun legal news. Like, that's your one. That's the one enlightening thing you get. The one laugh. The one smile. Because the next one, March 18th, 2021, from the ABA Journal, Children's Court Judge... Charged with possession of child pornography. A Milwaukee County, Wisconsin Children's Court judge was charged with possession of video and images depicting the sexual abuse of toddlers and boys. Judge Brett Blom, 38, was accused of uploading the material using a messaging app called Kick and has been charged with seven counts of possession of child pornography. Blum allegedly uploaded the material in October and November of 2020 uh, and was the same using the same email address that was used to communicate with a Wisconsin court email, order holiday cards with his family photos, communicate with his kids' schools, and refinance his home. The criminal complaint in this matter, uh, which was filed in front of the court, uh, goes into much more detail that we're not going to go into at the moment. Uh, Suffice to say, the judge is facing rather serious charges at this point in time. Uh, The defense lawyer, Christopher Van Wagner, has said that Child Protective Services has been involved in the matter, but has stated there is no indication in the criminal complaint or in any evidence that any of Judge Blom's children were at risk. 
There is not a word in there that my client directly did anything that tried to put him in touch with any miners, his or anyone else's, Van Wagner said. There's not a scintilla of factual suggestion in the criminal complaint that, other than the use of the Internet, he ever posed a danger to any children. Well, that's comforting. Uh, you know, it's, that's, that, that's a, a great defense right off the bat. Uh, you know, well, yeah, it was illegal and he's a judge, but, uh, but at least he didn't put anyone directly in danger. Finally tonight, again from the ABA Journal. A wife's warnings before death can't be used in the husband's murder trial as ruled by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that a dead woman's warnings that her husband may kill her could not be used as evidence for retrial in, her, in the murder charge. <clears throat> Julie Jensen had made several statements prior to death to several different parties, suggesting that if she died, the police should focus solely on her husband as the cause of her death. When she did die in 1998 as the result of antifreeze poisoning, the police heeded those warnings, looked into it, and after reviewing voicemails, she actually left with the police saying, you have to look at my husband if I die, uh, decided the, to charge him. Now that was introduced as evidence in the trial. Uh, the defense had argued, however, that Julie took her own life in a manner that would focus suspicion on her husband. Uh, over prosecutors alleging that Mr. Jensen had searched the internet to find ways to make the death look like suicide and that he killed his wife to be with his mistress. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, taking a look at this matter on appeal, decided that those warnings were not admissible evidence. They based this in part of Crawford v. Washington, a 2004 Supreme Court case that considered a hearsay statement by an unavailable witness when it could and could not be used at the trial. The Supreme Court of the United States held that such a statement is inadmissible under the Confrontation Clause if the statement is testimonial and the defendant had no prior chance to cross-examine the witness. In an earlier decision, Wisconsin had said the statements were inadmissible under Crawford, but a trial judge should consider whether the statements could be admitted under the forfeiture by wrongdoing doctrine. What that essentially is, is you forfeit the right to say, I didn't get to confront this witness, we can't admit their testimony. If you're the reason, you don't get to confront that witness. A trial judge in that matter, under that review, had said that Julie Jensen's statements were admissible under that doctrine, and Jensen was subsequently convicted. Why did this change? Well, while Mark Jensen had a pending appeal on the judge's ruling for admissibility, the Supreme Court decided a case in 2008 called Giles v. California that said the forfeiture by wrongdoing doctrine applies only when the defendant caused the witness's unavailability with a specific intent of preventing them from testifying. As a result, that conviction was vacated. And when they tried to come in and use these statements again, uh, it went up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court that then found the Confrontation Clause still applied and Julie Jensen's statements could not be used. Interesting question on whether that's rightly decided or not. Can you not use uh, the statement by somebody who is later murdered by somebody just because they didn't kill them specifically to keep them from making a statement in court that said, hey, if I die, look at this person. It is a grounds for debate. However, you're never going to hear me argue for the narrowing of constitutional protections, especially in matters of life and liberty, such as murder charges. Who knows what the situation may be, but everybody is entitled to have their constitutional rights upheld when they are facing life imprisonment or, in the case of some states, the death penalty as a result of that. 
Please don't take that as Boozy is endorsing giving your wife antifreeze. I promise you, I most certainly am not. Boozy is just endorsing constitutional protections for criminal defendants. Because the way the wall works is we make sure everybody has the full protection of it and the state is held to a standard where it must prove its case within constitutional strictures beyond a reasonable doubt. In some situations, you may say, I think this person got off or they found a loophole and argue for the lessening of those protections. But I always say, if that's what you want, okay. God help you if you get on the other side of that system. Well, now that we have the news handled, let's turn to tonight's topic, which is the time the federal government decided that speech which hurt their feelings was a violation of the First Amendment. Now, I, as a shitty lawyer in Philadelphia, Schittsylvania, am not overly familiar with the First Amendment. It doesn't come up a lot in my practice, so this will be a learning experience for all of us as Boozy pursues edification and then, like the loving mama bird that I am, promptly turns to vomit up the knowledge into your eagerly cheeping mouths. Yes, I know that's probably someone's fetish. Put it back in your pants, Pete. We got law to talk about. More specifically, we have one law to talk about being the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. You can see the whole fucking text of the thing. One sentence that lasts 45 words and has caused more trouble to the courts than anything else. One sentence that has been used to guarantee the rights of everyone from activists marching for racial equality to assholes picketing funerals. 45 words that have been interpreted to allow folks to spout 14 words in city center when they seek to do so. Office often contentious and always loud. The First Amendment is, as author and Huffington Post journalist Naomi Wolf said, designed to allow for disruption of business as usual. It is not a quiet and subdued amendment or right. In other words, it is the right to be fucking loud and, in general, do so without fear of restriction from the government. But how, exactly, did we come about gaining that right, written into the very foundational documents of our nation's history? And why? Okay, so you all know those stories about couples that are in a relatively bad marriage and in order to try and level things out to save the marriage, they end up having a kid. Yeah, that, that's sort of like the First Amendment. Except instead of one kid, the horrible marriage produced ten kids that were then applied to the Constitution and called the Bill of Rights. Uh, this was done so that Mommy and Daddy would all agree that they needed to stay together for the kids, really, and raise them into strong, smart individuals. In 1787, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia proposed a new Constitution for the United States of America, which had been led after the Revolutionary War by a weak central government under largely ineffective Articles of Confederation. Against this background, a proposal hit the floor with the apocryphal bodies and that one song we all listened to back in high school when we wanted to feel like metal little fucks. Essentially, George Mason, a delegate from Virginia, suggested that it could possibly be a good idea for the document that was going to form the country to include a Bill of Rights that would guarantee basic civil liberties to the populace that lived under the government, given that the proposed Constitution sought to create a very strong, as compared to the Articles of Confederation, legislative body and chief executive in the office of the president. In other words, it was proposed as a Hey, uh, dudes, uh, we're, uh, we're creating something pretty big here. Maybe we should codify some rights into the creating document to put some reins on that shit. Anyhow, there were some pretty fucking loud dissenting voices in the Constitutional Congress about this whole guarantee basic civil liberties in the Constitution thing. It wasn't necessarily because the other members of the Constitutional Convention had a desire to oppress the populace, but rather that they were still stuck in the time they were a product of. See, unlike other wars, the Revolutionary War was one that was based in the concept of self-determination and control within one's own territory of their own laws. States' rights, all that jazz. 
and the protest to the Bill of Rights was that guaranteeing basic civil liberties in a document that would control the behavior of all the states impermissibly vested way too much power in the centralized government when instead that power should be vested in the states as the parties with the responsibility and obligation to protect their citizens within their own boundaries. Further, there was a concern that in creating a standard list of delineated rights, the argument would then become that other rights, which were unlisted, would be interpreted as not being protected. Except, and here's the rub, while there was a justification given for rejecting the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, it wasn't the truth. See, the group that was espousing the, oh, we don't want to strip power away from the states, was the Federalist faction of the Constitutional Convention, a faction that was in favor of creating a strong national government through the Constitution. Meanwhile, the party that supported the Bill of Rights, and accordingly, the removal of basic civil liberties from the purview of the states, was the Anti-Federalists the group that wanted to limit the power of the proposed federal government. Seems like that doesn't make sense, but bear with me, because here's the first constitutional law fact I'm dropping on you. The Bill of Rights is a proscriptive, not prescriptive, document. If you go through the first ten amendments to the Constitution, not once will you see anything that grants the government any power whatsoever to do absolutely fucking anything. Indeed, what you see in those first ten amendments are restrictions on the power of the federal government. Restrictions that either, one, directly bar the government from doing something, shall not make, shall not be violated, no soldier shall be, etc., or, in the alternative, something that, too, directs the government that it must fucking do something, must provide a speedy trial. Nowhere in that document does the government gain any power whatsoever because the best way the Founding Fathers could guarantee, in their eyes, the basic civil liberties common to everyone was to smack the government over the head and say, No! like a bad puppy setting out some firm rules. The Federalists, of course, did not like the idea that these restrictions would be codified into the Constitution, as they wanted the federal government to have unlimited power that could be checked only by the states. Which, to be fair, considering that this was a time period when the ability of a state to leave the government was a thing that was sort of assumed would be available, is kind of reasonable, I guess? I mean, I, I don't think they were actively trying to create mecha-president ready to trample over the rights of the states, and they were just then coming off of the absolute failure of the week, hey, you guys really pay your taxes? Government formed under the Articles of Confederation. Like it or not, though, the Federalists had to concede the Bill of Rights to the Anti-Federalists to get nine votes to ratify needed by the states and put the new Constitution into place. And that's why we have ten amendments that specifically tell folks what the national government absolutely positively cannot fucking do in relation to its people. The First Amendment, though, was not controversial. Concepts such as free speech and religion of free of government interference, those were cornerstones of revolutionary thought well before the American Revolution. Both have been touted as cornerstones of actual democracy and the basic rights of man by influencers on the founding fathers such as John Locke and dating as far back as Rome. It was, for many of the people that were tasked with forming the Constitution, the equivalent of, well, no fucking shit when proposed. And surprisingly, it is the very lack of controversy or embellishment that makes the First Amendment one of the most open-to-interpretation rights when addressed by the courts. See, the initial proposed amendment was not 45 words long. It was as follows. 
The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. The people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments, and the freedom of the press as one of the great bulwarks of liberty shall be inviolable. The people shall not be restrained from peaceably assembling and consulting for their common good, nor from applying to the legislature by petitions or remonstrances for redress of their grievances. That's, um, that's more than 45 words and one sentence. And if you compare it to the actual text of the First Amendment, it sure as hell goes a lot more in depth in what is and is not protected. I mean, it's pretty much setting out exactly what the prohibition is. Then, of course, folks got out the red pen, presumably in the sake of brevity, and knocked out almost every in-depth prohibition to come up with the current version of the First Amendment, which subsequently passed almost without any debate. Likely because, as stated before, the concepts espoused by the amendment were not new and unique and were genuinely considered to be no-shit, non-controversial guarantees of rights. In this time and era, when men who were drafting and approving these things had fought a war based on their freedom to speak their minds, and when the very concept predated even that war by hundreds of years, they clearly felt nothing more needed to be said on the matter. In fact, let's take a look at the text of the First Amendment presently. The First Amendment to the United States, those 45 words in one sentence, as adopted, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, brevity may be the soul of wit, but it sucks for interpretation. The problem with such a short and plain statement without detail is that courts sort of rely on legislative intent when determining what a particular thing is supposed to mean. And to determine legislative intent, they look not only to prior versions of the documents that were proposed and then edited later, but also to the debate and discussion surrounding the document prior to passage. So where you have, generally, one revision that passed with no debate or discussion on the meaning, what you are signaling to the future is not there. There is no record of the intent behind the finalization of the amendment outside of the historical context of time, which leaves it open to constitutional interpretation and the standard schools of thought when the matters come to the courts, which, you know, is a bad thing when you're talking, when what you're talking about is literally a part of the supreme law of the land. The way the priority of laws works is governed first by the Supremacy Clause, which states as follows at the United States Constitution, Article 6, Clause 2, This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Essentially, the Constitution which the First Amendment is a part of, controls all the other laws and makes everyone in the land beholden to it. So, in this case, a little fucking guidance would have been nice. Instead, what has happened, and what continues to happen, is the evolution of the First Amendment by interpretation and rulings and the changing times. And, boy, like Bob Dylan said, when it came to the First Amendment, those times certainly were gonna be a-changing. 
Now, again, myself and constitutional law had a love-hate relationship in law school. In no small part, because it was a two-hour class very fucking early in the morning, and I wasn't ready for any of the deep thought at that point. As a result, while I certainly understand and know con law, I never really got into the in-depth study of it. There's just a lot, not a lot of call for constitutional arguments in the course of keeping a person's home or defending a DUI, and to the extent there are, you pick up that part of it on basic principles and practice, not by the in-depth study of the issuance of letters of mark and shit like that. Now, as I said earlier, the principles of the freedom of speech were basically considered so non-controversial that in debating the meaning of them, Congress essentially went that's really verbose for something we all know what it means, so we're just gonna pare that shit down right there. Fuck, as I pointed out last time, there was pretty much no discussion at the time it was passed, other than someone taking out the red marker, pulling the old Hemingway, and saying more with less, cutting out what they determined to be superfluous words. However, as we know, the founding fuckers were being a little optimistic in their estimation of mankind's intelligence in taking this tack, as what happened thereafter was a hodgepodge of judicial determinations as to what the limits and benefits of free speech actually were under the Bill of Rights, leading to the modern interpretation of the Shorter Amendment, those 45 words, and its guarantee of basic liberty for the people that live under its rule. And with the Bill of Rights ratified in 1791, it wasn't until a f even a full decade later that the first major challenge to free speech came to national prominence. And it came because President John Adams really fucking hated criticism. Enough that he made it a jailable offense. You have to first understand, 1798 was a different era. In 1798, the world was more or less aflame. Folks in France had, in 1789, taken a look at the upstart colonists in North America and how they tossed the British out on their ears, specifically with the help of the French monarchy and its troops and ships, and took a long, hard look at how their own shit was going. It seemed to them that the Americans, who had relied on not only French guns, ships, and support, but also French philosophy, and forming the fledgling republic had the right idea, particularly when viewed in the light of class disparity and famine that was beginning to wind its way through Paris. And as the actual number of cloaked assassins leaping from the gargoyles of Notre Dame into haystacks was rather low, they decided to take matters into their own stunningly well-manicured and wine-sodden hands. And in 1798, the conflict over who would control the land of wine and cheese was still raging, which was unfortunate. Because while the American government was eternally grateful for the assistance of the French monarchy, and while the people of America certainly recalled the assistance and thought of the French warmly, at their base the founding fuckers were actually Englishmen. And in the 18th century it could be said with no small amount of understatement that the English did not, in fact, like the French. In fact, the whole England and France are getting along and best as best buddies thing was more or less a 20th century invention. At this time, these two countries were, in fact, engaged in all-out conflicts with each other, even as the government of France was in tatters and under constant reorganization from month to month and year to year. Without a strong central government to point to, and with the French in regular disorganization as a result of their own fight for freedom, the United States politically looked to secure alliances with the more stable government of Great Britain, the same nation that not only the colonists had sprung forth from, but which they had unceremoniously thrown out not long before. It was in 1795, under President George Washington, that the whole thing really went to hell. At that time, the United States had some loose ends to tie up with England over the whole we-kicked-you-out thing as the 1783 uh, Treaty of Paris, <clears throat> while ending the Revolutionary War, hadn't exactly spelled out the rights and duties of both the newly minted American government and their former overlords on that dreary, cold island 
So the Americans and British sat down and hammered out the Jay Tree, which took care of a few of those loose ends and ended up strengthening not only political but economic ties between the former colonies and their old country, which didn't really sit well with the French, who were, to put it mildly, outraged at the idea that America was cozying up to the British, given the fact the French had, one, just helped in a goddamn war against the British, two, were now in the midst of their own revolution, and three, were actually at war with the British at the time the treaty was ratified. So, you know, the French were right to be a little pissed, because while the treaty was intended, in a large part, to ward off the specter of war with Britain on American soil... On the British side of things, it was heavily favored specifically so the Americans would not support France in its current war against the White Cliffs of Dover. So we can cue unrelenting years of strife, mainly as the French and Americans would edge closer and closer to war with each other, much like a high school romance tossed asunder those once close parties were coming ever closer to engaging in armed conflict with the French stopping and seizing American trade vessels and the neutrality of the United States being called into question and into this backdrop, in 1797, came John Adams, the second president of the United States, attorney, advocate, founding father, diplomat, just like so many things. And, eventually, the government official endorsing the suppression of speech. When Adams took to the highest elected post in the land, he did so by trying to appease the two factions of government then in existence. On one hand, there were the Federalists, the whole reason the United States exists as it does in the modern day, a party that believed in order for what was a loose confederation of states to prosper, there was a requirement of a strong centralized federal government. This was the party that brought us the Federal Reserve, and other symbols of a centralized government that had superiority in many areas over the sovereignty of the separate states. Then, on the other hand, we had the Democratic Republicans, or as folks started to refer to them at the time, Jeffersonian Democrats. This was a party that believed very strongly that a strong central government was an anathema to the individual and state liberty, and ran the risk of becoming so strong that the people lose the right to self-determination in local affairs. To put these parties in modern terms, they were, I mean, you can't really put them into modern terms, can you? They were a product of their era and the men who served them. But what you can recognize is that from 1797 to 1801, the titular heads of both parties, either by virtue of being elected executive of the nation itself or by virtue of being the celebrated elder statesman, were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Both had been founding fathers of the country, and both from relatively different social backgrounds, with Adam representing the salt-of-the-earth landed gentry of the Northeast and Jefferson the enlightened aristocracy of the South. Both were properly called gentlemen farmers, but both were strong-willed and often at odds on their theories of policy, both domestic and foreign. And among those policies that they disagreed on was how to handle the situation with France in relation to the Jay Treaty of 1794, especially in light of the growing hostility, not only in Europe, but also between the United States and revolutionary France as it currently stood. To make no mistake, it would be fair to say that the country, for the second time in its brief existence, bordered on the brink of war with a major European power, and such war, much like the French and Indian War in comparison to the Revolution, would be against a former ally and in conjunction with a former foe. The situation during the Adams presidency was even more heated, though, as the Democratic Republicans were sort of lovers of the croissant, the tricolor, and motherfucking freedom. The Jeffersonians were all about throwing their weight behind the French and pressuring the national government to reach deep into the well of memory to repudiate the British because those guys could hold a grudge and instead throw the near and substantial weight of the Americas behind the French in their struggles. 
The Adams approach, though, was to call for the building up of a military and the preparation of a national defense, convinced that the only way to prevent America from becoming a pawn to European struggles was to hold a strong military to discourage and, if necessary, defend against any attempt at dragging the U.S. of A. into the old world conflict. And, you know, throwing a bone to the Jeffersonians by delegating a peace conference to go to Paris and try to get the French to knock it the fuck off. By the way, the the peace committee did not make things better. See, the peace delegation went abroad in 1797 to try and negotiate with the French. And, I mean, effectively, they were going to stand in the halls of power in Paris and shout, Dude, bro, what happened to you, man? You used to be cool! But much like Tony, who turned into a total asshole and narked on us after he started getting good grades, the French weren't inclined to react favorably to the Americans coming in to try and gain peace. See, on the French side of the coin, the Americans were viewed as little more than an ungrateful nation. Given that the whole, for the French helped us win a war and made us a nation thing, I assume they believe that this assistance should bring forth something of bit more than us dumping and forgetting the French to go back to our old girlfriend, Buxom Britain, the first time she wagged her superior trade partnerships at us. Which sort of led to the French delegates refusing to even meet the American delegates unless the peace commissioners agreed to bribe the motherfuckers for the pleasure of their time. And while politics and payment for the time of a government official would later become standard Washington practice, it wasn't in this era. In this era, it was insulting as hell. And the commissioners detailed these issues in their numerous dispatches back home to President Adams, who immediately read them and said, Oh, shit. If these get out, we're going to end up at war with France because they are bad. Like, this shit is worse than a Twitter DM screenshot. So Adams set on the dispatches and refused to allow them to circulate to the public or even to Congress in their entirety judging that taking the insult on the chin was better than a fledgling country ending up in a war, especially since the French happened to own, like, the entire southern fucking half of the continent at the time. But the Federalists, who were itching for a fight in no small way to prove the idiocy of the Democratic-Republican position on conciliation with France, were insistent. So insistent that they repeatedly demanded the release of the letters to them and then to the general public. Finally, under great public pressure to do so, Adams redacted the names of the French parties involved where they were mentioned, replacing them with W, X, Y, and Z as necessary, and sent them on to the Federalists and Congress with an admonition to consider the consequences of the letters being widely distributed. And in the grandest tradition of political punditry, the parties obviously recognized in a stunning show of bipartisanship that these letters would inflame an already tense situation and decided not to show them to the American public, and of course, I'm fucking with you because they totally fucking released those things and drew an immediate and visceral reaction from the American public, including the previously stayed Democratic Republicans. And that shit led to a quasi-war, the 18th century version of a police action from 1798 until 1800. This undeclared, mainly naval conflict, meant that while America and France were fighting each other, they weren't officially at war or a part of any formal conflicts. Still, for two years, the risk existed that the conflict could boil over from quasi-war to actual goddamn war at just about any moment. Which brings us up to the moment that the Adams administration decided free speech was a bad thing when placed in the hands of people they don't agree with. So, uh, did you listen to everything I just talked about? Because we're getting to the law now, and if you didn't, I mean, I guess it's fine. I didn't put a lot of fucking time into researching or writing or reading it or anything, just so you can understand the context between the actual legal history lesson we're about to cover. Fucking ingrates. I'll summarize it here, though. In 1798, America, cue bald eagle screech, <clears throat> not like Eclair County, kind of go 
kind of sort of boom boom with them bald sour man and big house say we no want real boom boom but other people want real boom boom with eclair people something need done the something though wasn't like espousing and explaining the issues with a real full-scale war though because that would have been sort of reasonable Instead, the something that needed to be done to decrease the risk of a full-scale war with France was, in 1798, to be best encompassed by something known as the Alien and Sedition Acts, a series of laws that purported <clears throat> to limit the risk of foreign agents infiltrating and exhorting the public into war through protest, something that the Federalists at the time felt was a real risk. And they did this by making it, A, more difficult for foreigners to legally enter the United States, and B, limiting the application of citizenship rights to foreign-born persons, while C, making it a hell of a lot easier to deport folks who were born overseas, which was kind of an issue in goddamn 1798 because a lot of the country was actually comprised of people who were born overseas to some extent, considering we were only like 30 goddamn years removed from being a colony. But that, as juicy as it is for drawing comparisons to the present, isn't the First Amendment focus. At least, not the main part of it. Now, the First Amendment focus of the conversation was the sedition portion of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, in case you, like most of the unwashed internet masses, don't have a dictionary that is not urban in nature available to you, Sedition is the incitement of resistance to or insurrection against lawful authority as defined by Webster's Dictionary. And in the series of legislations that became the Alien and Sedition Acts, there was enacted a certain section of law that purported to clamp down on people encouraging unrest. Written at Section 2 of an act in addition to the act entitled An Act for the Punishment of Certain Crimes Against the United States, read as follows. And be it further enacted that if any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, or shall cause or procure to be written, printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States, or either House of Congress of the United States, or the President of the United States, with intent to defame the said government, or either House of the said Congress, or the said President, or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them or either or any of them the hatred of the good people of the United States or to stir up sedition within the United States or to excite <clears throat> any unlawful combinations therein for opposing or resisting any law of the United States or any act of the President of the United States done in pursuance of any such law or of the powers in him vested by the Constitution of the United States or to resist, oppose, or defeat any such law or act or to aid, encourage, or abet any hostile designs of any foreign nation against the United States, their people or government, and then such person being thereof convicted before any court of the United States having jurisdiction thereof shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $2,000 and by imprisonment not exceeding two years. Other than my accent, can you see the problem there? See, the goal of this law wasn't just to prevent people from actively encouraging the United States to go to war with foreign governments or to oppose any policy seeking peace or war. The goal of this act was to stop people from criticizing the government at all on the theory that doing so was providing aid and succor to the enemies of the United States. It was, in 1798, a direct attack on the very essence of the freedom of speech, that the government should not restrict or punish someone for their speech. 
and the law, while ostensibly intended to only stop malicious and slanderous speech that would excite the populace based off of lies, wasn't written in such a way that the application was limited to just those concerns. Indeed, the way the law was written, as you heard, was to expressly forbid people from criticizing the government in a time of crisis on the theory that doing so actually assisted the enemies of the United States rather than encouraged debate, protest, and the voicing of opinions on current events among the populace. It was, as written, open to being used to threaten dissenters from the government line into silence by applying jail terms and fines against them for merely disagreeing openly with the government. And of course, today, we would look at such a law and say, that's just alarmist talk. Nobody would ever apply a law like that. Except the Federalist government totally fucking used the law to silence their political opponents for mere disagreement. During the efficacy of the Sedition Act, over 20 people were arrested and jailed and or fined for criticizing the government and administration, all of them Democratic Republican newspaper editors and political opponents of the Adams administration and the Federalists. In short, the Adams administration and the Federalists used the threat of a conflict to actively promote and enforce a law that explicitly made it illegal to criticize the government in any way. Let me put it another way, one more relatable. Under these laws, posting a tweet critical of Trump in 2019 would ostensibly have been sufficient grounds for your arrest. And I know what you're thinking. The courts must have certainly stepped in and stopped this, right? Well, of course, the answer is um, no. No, we, uh, we sort of dropped the ball on this one. You see, at the time, the Alien and Sedition Acts were enacted. There was no process or power of judicial review by the Supreme Court over an act of Congress. The legislature, not the judiciary, controlled in determining whether or not an act was permissible under the law. And it wouldn't be until 1803 with Marbury, uh, Marbury v. Madison that the concept of judicial review courts determining whether acts of Congress violated the Constitution came into play. In 1798, the rule was that the ruling party got to say, the law means whatever the fuck we say it means, and that's that. So while the Sedition Act was a blatant violation of the First Amendment by today's standards, and that it allowed the government to restrict speech that it simply didn't like, there was no system in place for someone to step in and say, yeah, no, you can't do that shit, no matter how much you want to, dickweed. So it was left up to the people and the opposing party to speak out against the law, doing so in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Statements and resolutions made by the state legislatures of Kentucky and Virginia that spoke out against the acts. I know we were really original with names back then, weren't we? None of that cute, patriot, all-capitalized act bullshit. Those resolutions were created in and of themselves and formed a new constitutional crisis, however, because they flat out said that the states had the power to ignore a federal law that they didn't agree with, a theory known as nullification, and suggested that states retain the right to remove themselves from the control of the federal government in total. These suggestions, while speaking strongly against the government restriction of speech under John Adams, also planted a much more dangerous seed, one that would come to fruition in 1860, and which continues to be argued today, the power of the states to pick and choose which federal laws they wish to enforce, and the power of the states to secede as they will. This is where that shit really started, in the state responses to the federal government's attempt to restrict 
and criminalize speech that was merely critical of it. But it also likely led to judicial review. Which, I mean, sort of highlights the importance of Marbury v. Madison, the Supreme Court case that established SCOTUS had that power. When you get right down to it, in order for democracy and the Constitution to work, there must be a mechanism to check the power of the legislature to pass whatever law they want. And it is ridiculous to think that in 1803, when the precedent of judicial review was established, this wasn't fresh in the minds of the public as well as the justices that said, you know what? The court should determine what laws are enforceable and which ones aren't, not civil war every time someone disagrees with a budget proposal. Because otherwise, we end up with a chaos of pick-and-choose laws, and that way is just not really acceptable. So, in 1803, the Marbury Court decided SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, was the place where the buck stopped in determining whether Congress was violating the Constitution. Of course, by that time, the Sedition Acts were dead in the water, and between their passage in 1798 and 1800, the Act became a huge fucking issue, as one should expect when the government is like, you can't talk bad about us, and we have, you know, all the fucking soldiers to make sure of this. They were a primary issue in the election of 1800 and led both directly and indirectly to the election of Thomas Jefferson to secede Adams as president. And under Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, the sedition portion of the law was allowed to die an ignoble death, not being renewed when brought up for further debate, which was a great win for free speech. But, um... Not a complete one. Because it wasn't just called the Sedition Acts, but the Alien and Sedition Acts. And the Alien part, especially the Alien Enemies portion of it, remained in effect from 1798 until the modern fucking day. While it was revised after World War II, prior to revision, it was the fucking act used to justify the detention of Japanese-American citizens in internment camps in the 1940s. And, you know, today as well. Because in fucking 2015, a then-candidate Trump cited directly to prior invocations of this law, written in 1798, as justification for not only the barring of foreign Muslims, but also the removal of Muslims already in our nation as foreign enemies. Aren't you glad this shit is still around? The wrap-up on this is pretty simple. In the early days of our nation, there was no system in place to prevent mass hysteria or patriotism to be used to justify the enacting of measures that limited the constitutional right to free speech and, more importantly, speech free of government interference. As a result, a group in power attempted to, and actually did, criminalize speech that disagreed with them in an attempt to stymie public debate, discourse, and disagreement with the ruling party the very thing the First Amendment is intended to encourage. Because of this, and because there was no mechanism in place to tell the legislature to fuck right off because it could not, by fiat, accomplish what the Constitution forbid, the seeds of secession and nullification were planted. Likely, these rhetorics, once used to force the government to cease infringing on First Amendment rights of the people, continued to be used until they tore the country apart 60 years thereafter. And it serves as a warning to us. When the government attempts to paint speech as being unpatriotic or treasonous simply because it criticizes it, the government is relying on the same rhetoric the Federalists rested on in criminalizing dissent and criticism and which resulted in the arrest of those who dared to speak against that government. It relies on rhetoric and justification that has, already in the past, planted the seeds for tearing our nation apart, and may do so again if left unchecked. 
And this is why we, as a nation, and as attorneys, as gatekeepers of justice, as good citizens, recognize that freedom of speech from government interference is among the most sacred and most important precepts we are entrusted to protect. With that said, typically, I at this point turn to questions from our Patreon supporters who are listening live to the broadcast. However, tonight, I'm not sure if there are any. So instead, I'm going to thank you for tuning into this episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. And I'm going to remind you that if you want to support us, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor, where you'll join access, gain access to our Discord server and be able to ask questions on our weekly streams. I'll remind you also that typically, Boozy's Legal Funhouse is recorded live at twitch.tv Boozy Badger every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern. This time's an exception. And until next time, I am the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger, thanking you for tuning in and telling you to have a great day. Thank you. <laughs>